Thank you for reading. I know that was a lot. We have uh, two chapters we're trying to cover this morning. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, Yadira and I had the uh, opportunity to go to a student camp uh, where the students and us, we learned that there is so much more to life. You guys remember that. Um, and while we were there, um, one of the nights I had the opportunity just to speak some words to the students. And uh, Aaron asked the students if they knew who I was, and their response was, yeah, he's our drummer at the church. He's one of the drummers at the church. And uh, Aaron goes, he's also one of your elders. And their face was like, what? He's an elder too? So if you're here for the first time, let me uh, give you a warm welcome, let you know my name is Josue, and I do have the privilege of serving not just as a drummer or one of the drummers of the church, but I also have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at the Grove Church. And today, of course, I have the privilege of preaching God's word, which um, there are a lot of verses we're going to cover today. But as I was studying for the text this week, I was highly encouraged to see that the people that we admire in the Bible are just as ordinary as you and me. That as we look back to Genesis, the story of Abraham and Sarah, and we get introduced to Abimelech, and we hear more about Hagar, we realize that the heroes of the faith were actually just as common as you and me. And what we discover in this text today is this simple truth, is that God is faithfully working amidst our disbelief. And God is faithfully working despite and amidst you and my disbelief. And here in the text, we see it even with the father of faith, even amidst his disbelief, God is faithfully working. I've shared with you before stories of my childhood, of of things that I dreamed about. And I think one of the things I haven't shared with you before is that when I was a kid, I had this really big dream to grow up and be an NBA player. I don't think I've ever shared that with you. And so uh, for obvious reasons, um, God did not allow me to become an NBA player. Uh, he just didn't, he did not design me to do that, right? But when I was a kid, I thought, you know what I'm going to do when I grow up? I'm going to be an NBA player. I'm going to make millions of dollars, and I'm going to help the world with all the money I make. Fast forward to my teenage years, I'm about the same height as I am now. I'm realizing, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be playing in the NBA in the future. So, uh, you know what, I'll become a doctor, and I'll make a lot of money, and I'll help people by being a doctor and by helping them with all the money I'm going to be making. And you begin to hear a theme in my story, right? Fast forward post-college, um, I decided to take a year off after I graduate to get a business job before I commit to medical school begin to have a little success in the business world and begin to think, maybe I'm just supposed to make money and help the world by giving a lot of it away. Fast forward to now, and uh, as we are preparing to plant, I'm realizing God has ridden me of my dreams to make a lot of money, and he's calling me to help people by sharing the gospel as a pastor of a church plant and not be making a lot of money. But that's okay. I don't hold any grudges against the Lord. But the reason I tell you this is because what you probably hear in my story is that there is this pattern of the flesh that is consistent since I was a kid, this desire in me of things that I was saying were good, that I wanted to accomplish in life. And yet, as I was uh, growing in my faith and maturing in my faith, I was realizing that these patterns of the flesh were still present in me. And even today, if I am not careful, if I am not submitting to the Lord and going to the roots of my heart, there are these patterns of the flesh that are still present, even though I know I have a clear calling for the direction God's taken me. And that is what we find Abraham doing here. 
He is a man that is called the father of the faith. A few chapters back, God gives him the promise of Isaac. The Bible says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we have Abraham, the believer, and yet there is this pattern of the flesh that is obvious in him. And what is that pattern? Well, he tells Sarah, and we see it here in verse 13, if you'll read with me. And when God caused me to wander, this is Abraham speaking, from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. You see, at that time, if a king saw a beautiful woman and wanted to make her one of his wives, he had that opportunity to do so if she was not married. But if she was married, it was common at that time that the husband would end up being killed so that this woman would be taken because she was no longer wedded to any man. And so Abraham, the father of the faith, we see this is the second time he does the same exact thing. He set this pattern of the flesh back in Genesis 12, and here we are, the believer in God, the believer of the covenant God has made with him, still acting out of this pattern of the flesh. And so what we find in Abraham is this beautiful reality that uh, we are still in progress and God's not done with us yet. So I want you to look at your neighbor and say, God's not done with me yet. But do it with a little conviction. Look at your neighbor again and do it with conviction. Say, God's not done with me yet. That's right. God is not done with us yet. And what we find in this text is the reality that God is not done with Abraham's story yet. Abraham is doing these things because he says he feared that he would be killed. And so the first disbelief that we find in this text is that Abraham... Um, has fear for his life and so acts out of that fear, and yet God is faithfully working amidst our fears. God is faithfully working amidst our fears. These fears produce this pattern of the flesh that really are only broken by the life in the spirit. When we grow in faith, it is when we are able to break these patterns of the flesh that we carry with us from generation to generation, from time to time, from season to season. It's one of the reasons why last week I know it was kind of tough to, to dig into that story, but one of the things Lance uh, said to us was that whatever one generation tolerates, the next generation will celebrate. And I'm sure you can see this in your life in many ways, um, things that maybe you thought you were done with, now all of a sudden in a different circumstance fleshes itself back out. Things like uh, you saying, oh, I'm not going to be like my mom and dad, and now in your 30s and 40s, and kids act up, and you react. And all of a sudden, you kind of hear your, the way your mom used to talk to you, like, oh, wait till we get home, or wait till, you know, and you all of a sudden begin to see things in your life that are good, but some maybe not so good. And so it is in, in this fearfulness and in this brokenness that God comes and continues his faithful work for his glory and for our good. So we keep reading in verse 3 in the story, um, Abraham presents Sarah as his sister to the king, and then verse 3 says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God comes to this pagan king, Abimelech, this polytheistic king in a dream and says, you are a dead man. That is not really the kind of dreams I would want to have when God comes to me, right, telling me, hey, you are a dead man. I want you to pay attention, though. We find the key of this whole text in the first two words of verse 3. What does it say? Start with verse 3. You guys can, you guys can talk back to me. But God. You've probably heard this term before. And it is such a beautiful term that we find in Scripture. 
but God. You see, it is, we, we hear this term back in Noah's time. He says, but God remembered Noah. And we keep hearing this term over and over again in the scriptures. He goes on to say this with Joseph when he is um, taken. And he says, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. And we fast forward all the way to the New Testament. And I want you to go there with me. Um, this will be one of the few times I'll ask you to turn there with me. But go to Ephesians 2, the New Testament. Ephesians 2, after Galatians. Ephesians 2, verse 4, it starts off the same way. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, God has always made a way for us despite ourselves, despite our disbelief, but God being rich in mercy. This is the good news of the gospel that we find even in Genesis 20. Even in the Old Testament, God is making a way for sinners like you and me and sinners like the father of the faith, Abraham. God has always made a way despite our disbelief, and that is such good news for us today that he's not done with you, he's not done with me, that he is still restoring our hearts and our minds and our lives to reflect more of his image so that we may go to a world that is broken and needs restoration and, and profess these good news, but God has not forgotten his promise. And so he comes to Abimelech. Abimelech gets freaked out in this dream. We see in verse 6 he responds to God and says, um, yes, I know that you have done this, uh, sorry, verse 5, Sorry, verse 4. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? He is, uh, and she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I, do not, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, you, you know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And now we have echoes of the garden. He says, you shall surely die if you don't obey. He gives Abimelech, this pagan polytheistic God, the opportunity to act in obedience, to respond to a faithful God that is working and, and gives him the opportunity to respond in obedience. But gives him the same warning that Adam and Eve received in Genesis 2. That if you eat of the, of the tree of, fruit, of, of good and knowledge, you will surely die. And yet, he doesn't allow them to do this. So we see that Abimelech responds in verse 8. The next day, he wakes up early in the morning, goes and calls all his servants and tells them of this dream he has had with the Lord. And it says in verse 8 that all his servants were very much afraid. And now we begin to see some irony in here. The father of our faith, he is fearful of man. He is fearful of death. And we begin to see here that a pagan king, a pagan people are fearful of God. And there is this beautiful work that God is doing in both Abraham and in the pagan uh, king and his servants through his, um, through his words that he is bringing them to a deeper faith in himself. And so uh, Abimelech confronts Abraham in verse 10 and says, hey, Abraham. What, what did you see that you did these things? Why did you do this to us? Why did you lie to us? And Abraham, being full of humility, gets on his knees and says, I'm so sorry. I lied to you guys. I lied to the Lord. I repent. 
No, we don't find that is Abraham's posture. In fact, he says something very different in verse 11. He says, I did it because I thought. That's the end. I did it because I thought. They will kill me because of my, wi- of my wife. There is no fear of God in, at all this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Our, the father of our faith, his first response is not a repentance. And I think you and I can relate. His first response is to basically justify himself. He says, I did it because I thought they're going to kill me. All right. And then he goes, and by the way, verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. Technically speaking, she is my sister. And maybe you haven't done this before, but I like to use it from time to time. Like, well, technically speaking, wife, you didn't tell me to wash the dishes that way, so I did it my way. And we begin to see in ourselves the father of the faith's reality, the humanity, our disbelief that out of our fears we justify ourselves because we're thinking, because we are telling half-truths, which, by the way, Half-truths don't add up to whole truths, right? Half-truths always are a lie because of the intent of our heart. And finally, he says, she is not only my sister, and by the way, God caused me to wander. God sent me away, almost like blaming the Lord for the way he is acting now. And we may look at this and say, God calls this man a prophet. How can that be? Well, Psalm 103, verse 10 says this, about God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that good news, fam? That the Lord does not deal with us according to our sins, and he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. You see, that's what we find here for Abraham. We find a merciful, gracious God, because what ends up happening, even though Abraham does not repent, is that Abimelech then gives him ox, gives him sheep, gives him servants, and tells him, hey, wherever you want to be on this land, go and live for, uh, take it for you and your family. And we may think, man, that's pretty impressive. Like, Abraham sins, and God rewards him with wealth. So should I sin, and God maybe will give me all the money in the world? Answer is no, don't do that. Paul, in fact, tells us the opposite. He says, shall we keep sinning that grace may may abound? And, And his answer is, may it never be. You see, the right response in understanding that God is gracious and doesn't deal with us according to our sins is not to continue sinning, but instead to turn our disbelief, to turn our fears over to him and to become people who trust him at his word, to become people who truly believe he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do, to cast out our fears and to live a life of obedience, a life that is full of love toward him and love toward others. And so as we exit this chapter, I have a few questions for you. What fears are currently causing you to rely on yourself instead of trusting God? But maybe you say, well, bro, I need to have a plan for my life, right? I need to have some strategy for my life. And I'd say, yes, that's true. We are called to be good stewards of what God has given us. But is there fear in what you're doing? Is there some parts of you that are scared about what's to come? 2 Timothy 1.7 will tell us that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. So if there is some fear in you, then maybe you can think through some of these questions. What causes me anxiety? What am I scared to lose? What are the worst case scenarios running through my mind in this moment? How are they taking a hold of me? Maybe it's lack of sleep. Maybe it's causing me, me to be a helicopter parent. Careful, bro. Maybe it's over-depending on myself. 
Maybe it's working harder to make more of this American dream that I'm pursuing. What are the fruits that you are seeing in your life that maybe find their roots in this fear, which really is a, a, a root of disbelief, that we don't trust God says who he says he is. For you see, in Genesis 15, God had already told Abraham these words. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward, your reward shall be very great. So as we think about our disbelief that exemplifies itself in fear, God's word to us are real clear. Fear not, for I am your shield. So we continue in this story, chapter 21. This is the fulfillment of the promise. And it almost felt very, as I was reading this, like very anticlimactic. Like you almost think, man, there should have been more leading up to this birth of Isaac, right? This is a really big deal in the story of Genesis. This is the fulfillment of the promise. And we find really in the details is where we find the the exciting parts of the story. Verse 1 and 2, let's read them together. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And did you catch the big deal in these first two verses? Do you see what's the big deal in these first two verses? What's repeated? Three times. As he said, as he had promised, as God had spoken. You see, the reason why the, the, the covenant promise uh, fulfillment is such a big deal is not because of Abraham and Sarah's obedience. It's because of God's faithfulness to his promise and to his word. It is the reason why you and I can trust this book. It's the reason why you and I can trust a faithful God. Not because you and I are so good at doing life and so good at obeying. No, in fact, we mess it up many days, and yet he is faithfully working amidst our fears. And now he is faithfully working amidst our insecurities. Verse 3 in chapter 21 says, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which if you look at your footnote means he laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded, commanded him. Abraham, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Think about that for a second. Can you imagine having a kid at a hundred years old? I'm 36 years old and God hasn't yet blessed us with a child. And I'm already thinking, Lord, are you going to wait till I'm 40 to give us a kid? Because my body is starting to... You know, not react the same way. I'm starting to have some, some muscles that don't respond the same way. I'm starting to be more tired. And I think at 100, Lord forbid, I have a kid at 100 years old. And yet this was the promise God gave to Abraham, that he would have a kid and that it would be the father of the nation, that he would make him the father of nations through this son Isaac. So at 100 and Sarah at 90, In verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And he said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I think there's this play on words here of laughter. She's saying, hey, God has caused me to have Isaac, and and now there's rejoicing over me, and people will rejoice over me. But there's also this play on words because Sarah, in chapter 18, we heard her laugh. When God tells um, Abraham, hey, a year from now, I'm going to come and visit you, and Sarah will have a child. And Sarah hears this and thinks, I'm 89 years old. That's funny. There's no way I'm going to be having a kid. And we have these moments with God, too, these like, kind of like, ha, ha, Lord, you're kind of funny moments in our lives. Um, the past couple of years, as we've celebrated our anniversary with Yadira, uh, you guys know I process things kind of very systematically in my head. And 
through spreadsheets, right? And so we, we go to anniversary dinners in the past couple of years. Um, I normally sit down and guys listen with grace. I'm learning. But I sit down and I say, so what did we learn this year? You know, what can we take away from this year? Um, and Yadira very graciously answers me and says, there's time and place. We'll have this conversation tonight. We're celebrating. So last year she told me, hey, look, next year, uh, please don't bring it up. We'll talk about those things. They're good. But we don't need our annual marriage review at our, at our anniversary dinner. Um, and I told her, all right, sweetie, I understand. I won't bring it up. But remember, God, God is funny in certain ways. So at the beginning of this year, uh, actually uh, probably about February or March, we get invited to a church plan, a three-day church plan assessment that falls dead smack at our anniversary. So on our anniversary date, we're in front of other pastors, planting pastors, being assessed, having like a full review of our marriage and our spiritual lives. And we just had a moment at the assessment like, Lord, you're funny. Because last year... <laughs> We didn't want an assessment, and here we are, like, it's like tenfold worse than we could probably, not worse, just tenfold more intense than we could have imagined, and God was gracious to us in that time, and we laughed, and we know that that's God's gracious gift to us, but I, I imagine kind of Sarah having this ha-ha, like, man, I'm rejoicing, but also I'm 90, and I'm nursing, and she points at Abraham. She doesn't want to say I'm old. She says, in his old age, in Abraham's old age, you old geezer, right? Like, she's pointing at him because it's not about me. And so there's kind of, what I'm seeing in this text is a little bit of their insecurities of having a child at this age, even though God has fulfilled the promise, even they know it's not because of them or their work or the, anything that they've done, but in fact it's because of God's faithful work in the midst of their insecurities. They're still human like you and me and deal with these insecurities. And what do we find Sarah does with this? Well, verse 8, a child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham made this great feast on the day that he was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Another translation says, scoffing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. But wait, Sarah, wasn't it your idea 25 years ago for Abraham to sleep with Hagar so that you could help God in this plan to conceive a child that would be the heir, that would carry out the promise of the Lord? Wasn't it your idea now all of a sudden, she sees this 17-year-old boy laughing at potentially two, three-year-old Isaac, which, you know, if you have any brothers or sisters, you know that that's, that's just a part of being brothers and sisters, right? We, we make fun of each other. But Sarah sees this and says, I'm not having it. Abraham, send your, send your son and this slave away because he will not be a co-heir with my son, Isaac. And all of a sudden, there's some distance in here. All of a sudden, there's some security she is trying to solidify for her son, Isaac, despite the fact that it was actually her sinful uh, actions a few years ago, 25 years before the, or a few years before the, 17 years before this, that caused Abraham, obviously Abraham very complicit to her direction, right, but caused Abraham to have a son with Hagar, and she is very intentional, not even to mention his, his name. She says, this slave woman with her son, send them away. And we see these insecurities that even through this, God is working through these insecurities. Verse 11, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the, whole, because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This might be the birth of happy wife, happy life, right? God tells Abraham, hey, 
do what Sarah has said for you to do. Now, it was really difficult, and we remember Abraham as the father of the faith when he was tested with Isaac, but I don't know that many times we think about Abraham being tested with Ishmael, right? This is his son. Sarah's telling him, send him off to the wilderness, and what father in their right mind says, I'm going to send him off to the wilderness? If not, trusting God with what his word um, that was given to him was. And that word was this, that he would make a great nation out of Ishmael because Ishmael too was offspring of Abraham. And so, yes, next we will read about Abraham being tested with Isaac, but here we also find him being tested with his firstborn. And his response is verse 14, same response as Abimelech. He rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. You would think, man, Abraham's kind of wealthy at this point. Why wouldn't he send her with like a whole caravan of ox, sheep, water, like servants, all these things? He sends her with some bread and some water. And we're not given a direct explanation of this, but could it not be that Abraham all of a sudden is beginning to see God is who he says he is. God is indeed faithful. God indeed will carry out his promises. And when he says something, he will do it. Why? Because Isaac was just born when he's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old. And now God is telling him to send his son off into the wilderness, but says, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of Ishmael. And so Abraham sends him away, and we see that God continues to work despite our our unbelief. He is faithfully working through our fears and through our insecurities, and God sends off Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness. And we find now, story kind of shifts a little bit and focuses on Hagar. I know we're hitting a lot of different things this morning, but we're almost almost there. So Hagar goes out to the wilderness, and she has some water and some bread that won't last very long. And we find Hagar here as a single mom now, right? We don't have this context for single parenting before this. I'm sure worried about her son. I'm sure worried, what are we going to do in the wilderness? Just us two, the 17-year-old boy and myself. And, And they wander off. And we see in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. The next truth we find here is that God is faithfully working even amidst our trials. God is faithfully working even amidst our trials. You see, Hagar sent out. She's alone with her son. She's out of resources. She's out of water and bread. She's at the point of despair, watching her son about to die. She puts him under a tree. She steps away. She, she can't bear the thought of watching this happen. And maybe you and I find ourselves in situations right now of despair, where our trials feel like they're just overwhelming, where we feel like this is it. I don't see a way out of this situation. I don't see a way where God can intervene. I feel alone. I feel distance. I feel like I'm in the wilderness. I don't have enough resources to get out of this situation. God is faithfully working amidst our trials because we see in the next verse, God draws near. Verse uh, 16, we continue, or sorry, 17. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? 
fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God heard the cry of Ishmael, which oddly enough, his name means um, he will hear, God will hear. And here God hears Ishmael and here he hears Hagar. And so amidst our trials, it's okay for us to be on our knees, to cry out to the Lord, to maybe even ask, Lord, where are you? Even when we feel alone, because God is reminding us through this text that we are not alone, that we are not abandoned, that he is never too far, or we are ne- haven't ever wandered too far away from him to where he does not hear our cries. And we find here that God is still faithfully working amidst our trials. I'm going to read this over you. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You want to be perfect and complete? You want to lack nothing in life? The way we accomplish that, the way we acquire that is not through the American dream. It's not through comforts. It's not through uh, working harder. It's not through parenting really well. All those are good and, and healthy things for us to pursue. But really the way we find perfection, the way we find ourselves lacking nothing is actually through trials. And this is where we see God working amidst the trials to grow our faith, to grow my faith in him, to trust him more deeply, to know him better so that the day of tomorrow as we're planting and we run into difficult circumstances, we can cry out to the Lord and trust that he will respond I have to believe that Hagar knew about Isaac's being the fulfillment of the promise. She had been hearing of the things God had been doing in Abraham's life. And so she cried out and God listened. And so you want to be growing in your faith? My brother and sister, that comes through trials. Not the absence of trials, but us turning to the Lord through our trials. And that's sometimes hard to believe. And that's sometimes hard to understand. Because when we're in the thick of it, all we want is relief. All we want is for God to take it away, and yet God in his great mercy does not take it away because through these trials, he is perfecting our faith that we may have have steadfastness in him. So we will land in this final section of chapter 21. So God, let me just finish the story real quick. God ends up giving Ishmael and Hagar um, a well that they can drink from. They end up being in the wilderness for a while. Ishmael becomes a man of the bow, and he ends up marrying an Egyptian that uh, Hagar finds for him, and he does end up becoming uh, a father of a nation that there's, there's a lot here that I can't unpack, but ends up being the contentious nation um, to the nation of Isaac, that even to today we find that contention still alive. But um, that'll be for another time we can unpack that. For now, we'll finish with this last uh, section in verse 22 of chapter 21. God is faithfully working amidst our fears, amidst our insecurities, amidst our trials. And then we come to this final section. Abimelech comes to Abraham. It says, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal with, falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I, swear, I, I will swear. It's interesting, Abimelech, this pagan polytheistic king, the man of integrity, comes to the father of the faith, and he says, hey, Abraham, 
don't lie to me again, right? Uh, and it's so ironic to me that a pagan person is calling out the faithful believer here. But it kind of makes me think of when you and I are with neighbors and friends, and, and they know we're believers, and they know we're Christians, and they come to us and say, well, do Christians react that way? Like, should Christians yell at their kids? Uh, I don't yell at my kid, right? These are the people that are looking at us and saying, wait, but should Christians be doing that? And then, in my mind, this is a gift of God's mercy. This is a gift of accountability for you and for me that even the world outside would know our faith and would say, hey, that's not the right way to act or to react. There's something deeper here that God is calling you to. And so Abimelech's telling Abram, hey, don't lie to me again, but instead, I know your God's great. I don't really believe you. I think you're a liar. I don't really know all that's going on here, but I know that your God is powerful. And so would you just swear that you will treat me good, that you will be good to me and my descendants? And Abraham says, I swear. Abraham then goes on to uh, basically tell Abimelech, hey, there's this well that I dug up. Your people have taken it from me. You need to make this right. Abimelech makes it right. And then we can flip the page to the next verses. And uh, in verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. In these last three verses, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And this is the final point I want to leave us with today. God is faithfully working amidst our sojourning lives. Up to this point, Abraham has not settled anywhere. In the previous chapter, we saw that Lot settled in the land and there was some judgment on the land. But up to this point... Abraham has not yet settled anywhere. He is still sojourning. He's still on his way to the promised land. There's still something more and greater to come. And, and in, on his way to the promised land, he receives Isaac, the fulfillment of the promise he received uh, 25, 30 years earlier. And for me, as I read this text, I thought it's important for us to remember the words of Hebrews 13, 14. And this is uh, a different translation than the ESV. But it says, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. As you and I navigate Monday through Saturday outside of here, maybe even Sunday afternoon, the reason we're able to navigate Monday through Saturday and the days outside of this space is because we know that this world is not our home, that you and I are sojourners, that the reason that even when we acquire the things that we want, wealth, comfort, uh, whatever it is that you are trying to acquire, even when you get it, it's not as satisfying as you think it's going to be. Why? Because the things of this world will never satisfy us because we were created for a different world. We were created for eternity. We were created for a home that is yet to come when King Jesus returns and makes everything new. And so as Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, hey, as you sojourn in this, in, in this land, uh, do good to me. This is a pagan king asking the father of the faith, to be good to him on this earth. I think the, the gentle reminder for you and for me is that as we sojourn and we are full of disbelief, 
and we have a hard time day in and day out truly believing God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do, that we would not forget that our call is to go and make disciples of the nations, that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. That, but God is still working in you and me, and so we don't do that perfectly, but we're sojourners. And so the things of this world will never satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts because the deepest longing of our heart is actually Christ. And so when we come into a deeper relationship with him, when we come into a deeper understanding of who he is, when we come into a deeper trust of his word, the deepest longings of our hearts are satisfied. And all of a sudden, we are able to, like Abraham, respond in obedience, respond in faith. And when we're asked to do really difficult things, we are able to respond and say, here am I, send me, Lord. It's all in with this thought. From these stories, we see that God is working even when we are not full of faith. Even when we don't trust his word, even when we don't believe he says who he says he is, he is working amidst your fears, amidst your insecurities, amidst your trials, amidst your day-to-day life where you are just uh, surviving day in and day out. He is faithfully working. Will you and I then be men and women who can look to this story, these stories, and be reminded that God is everlasting He is steadfast in his love for you and for me. He has not abandoned us, and instead he is doing a great work in our hearts. Why? That we may reflect his image to a world that also needs to hear these good news. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we look to the heroes of the faith, uh, we're reminded that the heroes of the faith needed a hero themselves. We're reminded that there's only one hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus. He's the only hero. Everyone else in Scripture needs that same hero that we need. And Lord, thank you for the beautiful reminders that even the father of the faith lived in such a way that he needed your help. He needed your rescue. He needed your protection. He needed you to intervene when he was disobedient and lied and didn't have integrity. And you didn't rebuke him. Instead, you called him your prophet. And you used him, Lord, to bring about the nation that would give birth to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, Lord, it's just so beautiful to be able to take a step back and see your great work amidst our great disbelief. And so as we respond today, Lord, let us be men and women who, despite our disbelief and circumstances and trials, we'd be men and women who could cry out the truths of Scripture, that you are faithful to your word, that you are faithful to your promises, that we can trust that you have started the good work in us and you will complete it until the day of Christ. And so we can rest in that. The days that we are obedient, we rejoice, we celebrate your good work in our lives. And the days that we are not so good at obedience, Lord, we repent and we believe in the gospel of Jesus. Let us be men and women who are comfortable in the discomfort of repentance and belief so that, Lord, we may take these good news to uh, the world around us that needs to hear. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Sarah, Abraham, Abimelech, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, and all the people that we find in Scripture that at the end of the day points us to one and only one hope, Jesus Christ. So today we respond and sing to this one hope, who is Jesus. In your name we pray.